the essence of Tucson is the stories. Even even more so maybe than the buildings. Because that's what we have in Tucson. We have a lot of stories. We have a lot of old stories. A lot of old stories that have not been told. A story is what makes us human. Story is what separates us from everything else. And if I were 20 years younger, I would probably do another book. You're listening to Tuxonense. I'm Angus Anderson. Patricia Preciano Martin is an author, oral historian, and speaker whose work has been invaluable in documenting and sharing stories of Mexican Americans in Tucson. She's written two books of oral histories Images and Conversations, Mexican Americans Recall a Southwestern Past, and Songs My Mother Sang to Me, an oral history of Mexican American women. Also, three collections of short stories. El Milagro and Other Stories, Days of Plenty, Days of Want, and Amor Eterno. Patricia's work can be like getting in a time machine and exploring daily life in a Tucson that seems so distant, so buried under technology and concrete and sheer human numbers, that imagining such a world taxes the brain practically to the point of overheating. Images and Conversations, written in 83, features oral histories with people who were in their 70s and 80s at the time. Sometimes the parents of these interviewees were born in Tucson before the railroad arrived in 1880, and sometimes they share stories of that world. This gives you a remarkably direct connection to the long 19th century, not to mention the 20th. I could write an entire monologue about why connecting to that time and those people is important, and I probably should, but for now, suffice it to say that, however remote, the legacy of historic Tucson surrounds us today. We may lack the memory to know it, but we taste that earlier Tucson in our food, recreate it in our architecture, relive and repurpose it in cultural activities. It's the reason that the city is, still, ethnically divided along the railroad tracks. Patricia's work, like that of the best historians and authors, reminds us that much of the past isn't past. It is, instead, a part of the present that influences us every day, even though we're too ignorant to notice. Like the child who assumes that all the food his parents buy originates from within the four walls of a grocery store. If you're interested in what makes Tucson unique, if you want to add a layer of richness to the world you see every day, you'll like reading Patricia's work. It's fun, it's fascinating, and I think it's really important stuff. So, today, a conversation with Patricia Preciado Martin. Her work brings us intimate, warm pictures of other people in their lives, but for this interview, I wanted to focus on her story, memories of growing up here in Tucson, how her thinking about ethnicity and identity evolved throughout her life, and how recording oral histories changed the way she thought about Tucson, its people, and herself. We spoke for three hours in early 2016, and I've edited that down to about 38 minutes. I wasn't born here, but I grew up here. I was actually born in Prescott, Arizona, and my parents came here when I was about probably three years old, but my grandmother was living here at the time. But I've lived all of my life, really, my growing up years in Tucson. And what year did you come out here? Well, I was born in 1939, so probably was maybe 42. And what are some of your most vivid memories of the city from growing up? My memories as a young child 
We lived in Sawarita for a while. Sawarita wasn't what it was now. It was a small mine. My dad, again, worked in the mill. Just a few houses, a dirt road, and the desert. And we had a lot of freedom. We ran around in the desert. And I, I don't know if that's why I'm a nature lover now or not, but I think that's what impacted me more is the outdoors. And, you know, children of that time, we spent a lot of time playing outdoors. My father injured his, his back in the mill, always had back problems, and we moved to Tucson to live with my grandmother, who lived on West St. Clair in Barrio Hollywood. So those are my memories. I don't have a lot of memories of downtown. I remember coming in from Sawadita when they would come. Um, my dad had an old woody station wagon. They'd come in for supplies, and, and we'd always come with them. And I remember the, the Santa Cruz River flowing. I remember sometimes we couldn't come in because it was f flowing too high and we couldn't cross. But I remember living with my grandmother. Those, those are very vivid memories for what me. What was Barrio Hollywood like then? Well, it, it's, well I guess it's kind of like it is now, except there's more of it. And um, I think there's Anglos that live there now. And um, we went to the old St. Margaret's Church, the one that's now their religious center. And there were just a lot of families there like ours with, with extended families, and uh, I have a very dear friend, Irene Felix, who also grew, grew up in Barrio Hollywood, and she remembers her mother and grandmother built their house, did a lot of the adobe work themselves. Her mother was divorced, so, which was very unusual. They had a cow in the backyard and chickens. My grandmother had chickens, and my very vivid memories are of that doggone chicken coop and that mean rooster. And I remember her garden, and I remember the, the ice cream man, the Cimarrona man. Cimarrona is the, the shaved ice, you know. The, and he'd come by on his little bicycle and ringing his bell, and we'd run out. I remember the man that would come by in his cart and sell watermelon in the summer, um, the bakery, uh, and just, you know, the neighbors and friends. I remember the women. My grandmother didn't make tortillas outside, but we had a neighbor across the street who made tortillas on a mesquite burning stove. We spoke English, and I understood Spanish because my grandmother didn't speak any English. And my grandmother's cooking. We would gather together and watch her kill a chicken, and, and she would morph into a bullfighter. And, and uh, I remember helping her pluck, pluck the feathers off the chicken. And, but the downtown... Not too much, because we really didn't go downtown until, I guess, we were older. And was that just because you were young? Because we were young, mm -hmm. and there was no real reason for us to go. I do remember going to the Fox Theater to the Mickey Mouse programs on Saturday. We didn't have a TV, and that was a big, big treat. And we would get cartoons, and they also would have those newsreels. And I remember that because it was like during the war, slightly after the war, and there were a lot of newsreels about the war. I do remember downtown. I remember Meyerson's White House. My We did go shopping there. But that was when we were a little older after we moved away from Barrio Hollywood. When we moved away from living with my grandmother, my father bought a house on 7th Avenue and Grant Road, right on the corner. There was an empty lot, 
a mud adobe house and a little mud adobe cottage. And and I remember it was not plastered. He got a really good deal. Uh, I thought we were going to go up in the world and and I remember crying. It was mudded. It was adobe. It didn't have an indoor bathroom, for God's sake. My grandmother had an indoor bathroom, but my dad was, we're going to fix it up, you know. So he did over time, but it was a while before he, I was already used thinking about going up in the world, and to me, we had taken a step down. <laughs> to me, having a red brick home, man, you've arrived, you know. That was my idea of a big going up in the world. You know, mm-hmm. you're a kid, and but that was my dad. He he grew up during the Depression. To him, this was his dream, this house, and he was going to fix it up, and he did. You know, but we had that outdoor John for a while. I don't mm-hmm. know anybody else who had an outdoor John. My favorite picture of my father is him on a stepladder on the side of the house, with a paint bucket and a paintbrush. And my mother must have taken that picture with a little brownie. And I love that picture because it exemplified him. He was, may, he may put things together with coat hanger and wire, but you know, he, we always said he fixed it Mexican style. And I don't mean that as derogatory. And then he fixed up the little house and they rented that. So he had a little income and then he rented the empty lot. I think he was fairly smart after all. He knew what he was doing, yeah. I guess he knew he what he was doing. He had a long game. I had a long game. I didn't know what he was doing, but yes. You were so. talking about like that kind of sense of, of when you were younger and you were thinking about moving up in the world and like, you know, the brick and mortar. I'm kind of curious when you were growing up and you were maybe more of a teenager or high school, like, did you think like, I've got to get out of Tucson? Like, were you really gunning to be like, I'm going to go to California or I'm going to go to a, another big city? I never felt like I wanted to live Tucson. I was very close to my family, especially my mother, very close to my sister. Um, and, you know, I was just like a mama's girl and a hometown girl. Now, I went to the University of Arizona. When I graduated, I went to Mexico to study one summer. I got a scholarship. And then I went to graduate school for a while, and that just didn't quite fit. I'd had too much school, I think. And I needed a job. And I did end up in California. But I went kicking and screaming, and I was very homesick. So, yes, I went to California, and I taught for a year, and then I joined the Peace Corps and met my husband, and uh, we got married and lived in California while he was in grad school. And then we, then we, Milagro, he, he got a job with Pima College when it, the first year it was open. What did it feel like when you learned that he got the job out here? Oh my God, it was it was so wonderful. And we lived with my parents for a few months while we were getting settled and I loved it. I don't know how my father, you know, men <laughs> felt about having two, by that time we had two children, two little kids in the house. But anyway, um, then uh, when we when we got our house, I tried to pick a home that was fairly close to their house so I could see them on a regular basis. You've got this incredibly long career of like really looking and listening to Tucson and different parts of Tucson. Um, when did that begin? I always knew I was Mexican-American. I had the Spanish recorded from a very young time. I wouldn't say I was bilingual, but it was in here, okay? And... It was not a self-conscious thing like it is now. We weren't culturally self-conscious. We just were. But when I went to Mexico, 
that summer to Guadalajara, a whole world opened up to me. I knew I was Mexicana, but I became aware intellectually of what it was to be a Mexican. I became aware intellectually of history, the broader picture, the whole picture, because that summer I not only studied the language, which I had become more proficient in because I studied at the university, and then I lived with a family. And we also traveled, went to Mexico City, and went to Tasco and went to Cuernavaca. So all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, this is who I am. Well, it didn't translate into my work. I taught junior high. And it must have, you know, these things imprint. You don't know they're imprinting. I've, I've not, not had to think about it too much. So at the time, you would have been exploring Mexico, but you wouldn't have been thinking like, oh, wow, it's wow. like I found my heritage or something No, like it, it was just imprinted. And I came back, of course, more knowledgeable. But it was a slow process, okay? So I... I moved back to Tucson. Um, I, I think I've always been a storyteller because I used to make up stories. We, we, we would do a lot of camping in the summer. We're outdoor people. When my husband, who's a big fisherman, would go fishing and the kids were little, I would tell them stories uh, to entertain them if he didn't get back in time or just, you know, it's a long day sometimes. And uh, he's the one, he said to me, you know, you ought to write those down. He said, they're pretty good. So I did. I started to write down these little children's stories that I was making up. And he said, well, you really try to get them published. So what did I know about that? It was, I won't bore you with that process, but I got a huge stack of rejection letters like that. And my stories were the giant who ate Christmas trees and who went walking on the dunes last night, the teeny tiny dragon, Clarence the car. Well, my sister was in grad school at the time, and uh, she had a, a teacher, Margaret Maxwell, who taught children's literature, and I decided to go to talk to her and see, well, will she read my stories and let me know mm-hmm. what she thought? Were you kind of looking for like some publishing advice as yeah, well? Like, yeah, yeah, publishing, sort of what, what, what are these stories any good? No one's publishing them. And she read them, and I met with her. I can see myself that day. And she says, well, these, these are... These stories are good, but she said, why don't you write about your culture? Now, that's interesting, right? So, I mean, I'm curious what it was like to hear that, but also what was it like for her to say that? Because it's almost like saying, like, you're writing these stories that are good, but they're not, maybe they're, I don't know, they're not of you or? Well, I think this is what was going on. This was in... Okay, 69, the early 70s, okay. There was no bilingual literature at that time. There was no Chicano lit. I mean, there were a few, Rodolfo Anaya and the gangs from New Mexico. But what did we actually have out there that told us our stories were worth telling? There was no Sandra Cisneros. There was no Pat Mora. There was no Juan Felipe Herrera who just became the poet laureate of the United States. There was Simone Lubari and a few people like that. But they were from New Mexico. And there's, their experience is very different. But anyway, basically, there was no bilingual literature. So it was a process of self-awareness. When she said that, I was blown away. I thought, oh, my God, I never thought 
of this. But I think all this time, all those memories that I had were imprinted on me, but I just didn't know they were of value. And so I decided that I would collect folk tales. I had begun to have Mexicano friends from my my activities in the church, and I was beginning to learn a little bit more detail about this experience in Tucson. I started to learn about some of the folk tales here, and I decided to write a folk tale, and I did. I wrote a folk tale called The Bell Ringer of San Agustin. There was a contest from the United Nations Year of the Child, and I thought, I'll write this folktale, bilingual, and I'll set it in Tucson, and it won, and it was published. And then I thought, well, that was really interesting. I'm going to collect local folktales. And I want to stop you for one second, because you said something that really interested me there. You were saying that you started to have Mexican friends, and so when you were growing up, it sounds like, well, you had a lot of family around, but like in college and after college, when you and your husband moved back here, were you hanging out with a lot of Anglos? And would this stuff have been like, would you have been further from the stories that you ended up getting into later? Well, you know, at the university, I had a lot of Mexican friends. Remember, we were not allowed to, to join sororities. Not that I would have anyway. Mm-hmm. But, but there like was a color bar. There was a color bar. And so there was a group at the university called Los Universitarios. And we were all Me- Mexican-American. We had no social outlet there because we didn't have any social groups that we could belong to. We had a lot of social fun together. We had dances, but there was a, it was always just Mexicanos. But after I went away, and after I went to the Peace Corps, and then I got married, and I lived in California, I had lost contact with my Mexicanos, my me- Mexican friends here. And then when we bought our house, we, we kind of bought it in a middle-class neighborhood. Who wanted to go back to the barrio and live? That was before... My mother and father, by moving to 7th Avenue and Grant, even though it was an adobe house, that was their way of leaving the barrio. Hmm. Because my mother felt that the schools were not good enough. Was and that that's the big why thing? She, for my mother, that was the big thing. Uh, and, you know, I will say one thing about my mother. She wanted us out of there. And, and, why and it, was well, that? I don't know... She had a very difficult life. Her mother died when she was young. She grew up very poor. I have to to be honest here. I think she, and, and I laugh about it now, everything that I love now and I'm interested in, and it makes me want to, I think my mother thought was backward. She thought it was backward. She thought it would hold us back. And... She wanted us to be different. Did she want you to be white? No, I don't think she wanted us to be white. I never, ever thought of myself as white. But she wanted us to be different. She thought of the barrio as old and run down, backward, I think, and I'm putting, we never talked about it, as 
not accepting the new ways. She she lived it. And to her, it wasn't anything to hang on to. We moved very easily between the two worlds. So did my mother and father. They had Anglo friends and Mexican friends, but they didn't feel this discomfort. And I never really did either. I wasn't self-conscious about it. And Even though there were discriminatory things in place, though. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was that politically aware. I must have been really naive because I, it was my life, and I didn't question it. I think it was after I moved away, I became more aware politically of what was going on, and I became more aware of discrimination and the housing discrimination. When I was, we were looking for a house, I found out that Winter Haven had a color bar. I don't know. It's just like all these things were imprinting on me. Mm-hmm. And I think by the time I began writing about my culture, all of this came to the fore. All of this feeling and knowledge somehow became important to me. That's when I started the oral histories. That's when I started hearing the stories about Tucson's history. How come no one ever taught me this? We had nothing of this in the university. We studied continental Spanish. We studied Spain's history. And there was a little bit of Mexico thrown in, but there was no Chicano history. There was no Mexican-American history. Everything that you did, it had to be self-taught. And what has it been like to get into so many stories of Tucsonans? Well, I think that's what's been so important to me. And I think it's what's made me who I am. I just wrote to Pat Moran Benton the other day. She wrote to me, said that she wondered if I had interviewed Genaro Figueroa, who owned a bakery in Barrio Libre. And I said, no. And she said, he just died, and I never got to him. And I said, you know, I feel that way all the time. I miss this person. I miss that person. Why didn't you ever interview my... But their stories are all our stories. And even though I haven't necessarily interviewed the individuals, I feel that it's a mosaic that we all share in. These ranching stories that I've collected are the stories of my grandparents the ranching stories of some of the women and their gardens and the milpas and the curanderas. And these are the stories of my antepasados. They may not have told them to me. I was young when my grandmother died. I wasn't wasn't interested in her history. But you you can recreate her world. I can recreate her world. And I think that's what's made me who I am. And it came late in life. As you gain this knowledge and as you sort of start interviewing and exploring and learning about all these other people's experiences, like, what is it like to start developing a sense of self like that? It it was like a miracle. And it wasn't just a sense of self. I think the other bigger component, most important component of my life is that I've become an educator. I've become a teacher. 
and I feel very passionately about it. And is that you and became I, a teacher because you started learning so much, so you became one almost by default? I became one by default because I share this with people. I just started doing the oral histories. I ran into Lou Bernal. I got this idea. Maybe I'm a creative person. Maybe, maybe I didn't know that until I was something was dangling right in front of me. I think it was that aha moment. And I was in the right place at the right time. Because when I went to the press, it was 1979, 1980. The Chicano movement, okay? I became very aware then of the like Chicano. The national one. The national one. And the one here was Salvador Negro and Raul Grijalva. I was a housewife. I wasn't going to go out and march. But I became educated. I remembered the struggles with El Rio. I wanted to be involved. I really couldn't. It isn't my nature anyway to be out there waving flags. I just don't feel comfortable with that. But I was in the right place at the right time. And with between Margaret Maxwell and the U of A press, something lit a fire in me. I had the aha moment. And one thing led to another because you start out with one thing and then it morphs into something and then... The oral histories morphed into personal stories, and that led me to another oral history, which led me to more fiction stories based on my experiences because there were a lot of the stories I couldn't put in a book because I'm limited by the... too personal No, because I was limited by the press Mm -hmm. on the length of the book and limited by my own energy, too. I mean, you know, oral history is incredibly, incredibly difficult. I had to gain the trust of families. And basically, I didn't know what I was doing to begin with. And then Mexicanos, especially that generation, which is a generation older than I, when I first started, I was interviewing people in their 70s, and I thought they were old. Now I'm 70, 76. You have to have the whole family. Okay, what does she want? What is her meaning? Are you going to make a lot of money? There's a lot of distrust there. And why was there distrust? Because of the prejudice, because of the discrimination. What do these people want? You know, what Did do you... you seem like an outsider to the people you were interviewing? No, I didn't ever feel that way at all. It wouldn't have mattered who I was. They have to build confianza, confidence. Confianza is a very strong word. And we've had a lot of history of being hurt. So who is a stranger? We don't even trust ourselves sometimes. What does she want with my grandmother? What is her purpose? And then I became very close to all the families, but it took two or three visits. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes one of my first interviews I remember so well, after several visits, was down in Patagonia with uh, Rosalia Salazar Whalen and her two daughters, Margaret and Alice. Alice has died, so is Rosalia, but Margaret is in her 90s now. Well, I'm so close to the family that, you know, I'm invited to their family reunions, and, and Rosalia told me that she had a daughter that died at childbirth. And we used to go out to Aravaipa to the family reunions, and we used to go to the cemetery. She told me, that she felt I was that daughter come back to life. That's what 
that's what takes all the emotional energy from doing oral history. I'm still connected to all the families that are still alive. These were our elders that I've interviewed. So I'm trying to document our history here, our presence here, and a way of life that's really disappearing. And I wanted to also, I think, deep down, learn about my own history and the long presence that we've had here. So I, I've interviewed people who, whose grandfathers or great-grandfathers was a captain of the Presidio, and that was Maria Soto Odelo, and they ended up having a ranch out there in Three Points, and her stories were wonderful. And they're just, they're just homespun stories. But some of these people had such interesting experiences that they were stories that would hook people, mm-hmm. like uh, this gentleman whose family had a ranch in the Rincons, and he talked about how his family lost their property in California during the gold rush. There had to be an emotional quotient. And then they went out there and the feds took their ranch away from them to create the national forest. And he said the same thing starting all over again because we were Mexican. He said there were other people in the valley with Anglo names and they didn't take their ranch away from them. So this like history of dispossession. The history of dispossession and... And also very personal stories like uh, Soto Audelo, who told me how her, they lived out by the mission. And when they took the lands away from some of those ranches out there to give it to the res, reservation and rightly so, all this time her grandmother had been saving money and putting, hiding the money in the pocket of her apron. So when the time came that they were, their land was confiscated, they had enough money to buy a ranch out at Three Points. You know, just little personal stories like that. They're emotional stories. How many people do you think you've interviewed? I would say maybe 40 or 50. And these are long interviews, right? Some of them are very long. Some of them are two and three tapes. Across that huge span of lives and experiences, what are the big themes that have emerged? The historical presence how far back we go, how deep our roots are, that's the biggest. Tread lightly because there are footsteps that have been here before you. Another one is, because I always have interviewed elders, is the family, the connection of family. There's always been, with every person I've interviewed, some member of the family by my side. And a lot of it's stories of resilience and acceptance, too. Acceptance. There are people that I have interviewed who've been poor all their lives, and yet they're well-rounded, accepting people who live in their wonderful little houses. You know, they're all neat and, and like they say, como una gota de agua, like a little drop of water, you know. The connection of family and acceptance, resilience, and the history, I think. It's the history that's really... And you know, also, so many of the cultural kinds of, of, of traditions that come through, too. A, a lot of my stories revolve around 
especially the women's stories, songs when they sang to me, they revolve around food. And I'm remembering Rosalia Salazar from Aravaipa Canyon, the one who said that I was her daughter come back. But she said to me, I've never been able to make tortillas as well as my mother. And I was laughing because I've always said that about myself. You know, I can't make tortillas as well as my mother did. And it's like this generational thing. No one ever thinks they can make. But my daughter, Elenita, makes them better than I do. So she may be broken. <laughs> she broke the cycle. She broke the cycle. But um, there's going to be a lot of things I wish I could have said. But how honorable these people are. You know, you're interviewing a lot of people who lived, I mean, you have also lived in, in a world that experienced a lot of prejudice. But as you talk to people who are a generation before you, it seems like probably a big theme that comes up is like injustice. And as you learned more and more about that, did you feel in a way that you were living in the shadow of the past, in a good or a bad way, the shadow of the past, thinking about the injustice that suddenly you knew about that had been visited upon all of these people who came before you? You know, that's a very difficult question to understand because I don't think that we always understand our intellectual process and growth. I didn't believe when I was growing up that I was an object of discrimination. I never felt it overtly. Maybe my parents protected us from that, but looking back, I can see it. And did the interviews help you see it? Um, no, I think it was more on a personal level than that. Mm. But there's something very interesting occurred, and I, I think we protect ourselves because I've had two things happen. One was people never liked to talk about prejudice in an interview. It was too painful. And is that something you'd ask head on? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I would ask head on. The second thing, one of my younger interviewees, who would be more my age, talked about prejudice over there in Sonoida in Elgin. And his wife, because they were Mexicanos, and even though he was a rancher in the area and been there for since his parents' generation, they were never allowed to join the Elgin Cattlemen's Club or whatever it is. I've forgotten what he called it. His wife would not let him put it in the book because by that time things had changed. See, that's, this is we're the tra- transitional generation. We came across and were accepted as equals. And... Now they have a lot of Anglo friends. Now, he told me about five years ago, or maybe it was 10 now, they were asked to join. He said, not going to join now. You didn't let me join back then. Very proud. But people didn't like to talk about them. But I would ask, do you have any Anglo friends or what's your social life like? And most of the time, the older generation, the generation before me, didn't have any Anglo friends. They lived in their own little bubbles in the barrios or in South Tucson or out on a ranch somewhere. And, you know, I think it's unfortunate that, you know, I'm not an academic, so I I always worry about 
not saying, you know, what an academic would say, but... No, that's really good. I it, would rather you didn't say what an academic would know, say. You wonder if it, it's, there's, so, there's a lot of prejudice now. I have a friend who's very... who's a mestiza. She's quite dark. She's been here for like three or four generations. Um, she's had people walk by her house and to go back to Mexico where you came from. And so... Right after they passed uh, 1070, she put a little cardboard sign in her car saying, I am third-generation Mexican-American and proud of it. And, you know, so with all this paranoia about immigrants and, well, there, there's been a backlash against Mexicanos. So I think this generation is going to relive what my grandfather's generation went back. My other grandfather, the Romero grandfather, was deported. But, you know, it, there's always been prejudice. People tried to work their way out of it, like my mom and dad. And part of that was being Americanized. And, right. you know, I, I really have to say this, that we are Americanized. This is where we live, and this is who we are. But I don't think of myself as being necessarily Anglicized. I have a foot in both worlds. And because I have that foot in both worlds... I can tell the story, go out there and tell the story, and maybe make people understand us and love us a little, and, and not, maybe not love us, that's too, going too far, but appreciate us. And it's one of the things that got you to write the urge to kind of be a bridge, you know, to say like, okay, I'm interested in recording these stories and writing these stories both to preserve them, but also to like share it with the Anglo community. You know, I don't even know if that was conscious. I'll tell you what it was. You know when you have a passion, you just do it. And that's how I approached it. Later on, I thought, well, when I began to be asked to speak, I realized that this was an opportunity to share these stories with the other world. With the non-Mexicano community, not the other one. You know what I mean? To, mm-hmm. to tell the story. Uh, story is what brings us together. It makes us one. And if I can, in small way, done that, that's my legacy. So, And actually, that's something I wanted to ask a little bit more about. What, what is the value of historical memory? Self-understanding and understanding of others. And to realize you're basically standing on the shoulders of many, many people. And to me, it's a very personal thing to be able to appreciate what you have, to appreciate your life, to appreciate those who've come before you. I think about my grandmother, and I I said, and I quote this um, Pincus Estes. that she had a dream, and in the dream she was standing on the shoulders of an old woman who's standing on the shoulders of another woman, and even older woman, and so on. And she said, but I am young, and you are old. You should be standing on my shoulders. And the old woman says, no, this is as it should be. And when she looked down in her dream, the old woman was standing on the shoulders of another old woman who's standing on the shoulders of an ancient woman, and on, and it could be not a woman, but a man. I used to say in my talks, 
They teach us how to live and die. They teach us how to love and let go. They teach us how to work and play. They teach us about our faith, but most importantly, about the faith in ourselves. So maybe the more we understand about our grandparents and our antepasados, the more we understand ourselves, and maybe in some small ways, the more we make an effort to be good. That was Patricia Preciado Martin, and you're listening to Tuxonense. I'm Angus Anderson. I'll be back next month with a second story on the Hohokam, their legacy, and how we think about them today. Tell me a tale. I